So, I mean, the first one, that's an easy one. Uh, and uh, I presume Stephen talked about great doubt, great enlightenment, little doubt, little enlightenment, no doubt, no enlightenment. And yet doubt is a fifth hindrance. And this is very interesting because it shows you that in different tradition, uh, words can be used in different ways. And it also what you, how you choose to translate it. This is also a question of translation. So, of course, in the Theravada tradition, in the Pali discourse, one of the five obstacles, one of the five hindrances is doubt. But the doubt there is what we would call vacillating doubt. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they have a very nice image for that doubt, that it is like trying to sew with a two-pronged needle, and so you can't penetrate. And so the, the, that doubt is kind of stops us because we think, what about this? What about that? And then you kind of, you can't decide. But... The doubt, and that's why nowadays less and less in uh, Korean Zen, when I translate, do I use the word doubt for oishim? Because I think, you know, maybe questioning is better. Because the doubt we talked about in Zen tradition is not a vacillating doubt. But it's actually more to develop a sensation of questioning. And so maybe one could say, great questioning, great enlightenment. Little questioning, little enlightenment. No questioning, no enlightenment. And I think, that's why I think questioning might be a better translation. Because doubt, often in English, has a negative connotation. And also in the early text, it has. Then there was a, a, a question about is there any way to open to greater realization? And I would say that's what we do all week. But I think we have to be careful of what I would call the myth of the Big Bang. I think often there is a bit this myth that, you know, we... We need to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to have a big bang experience. We are going to have a major, mega, mega insight. Uh, we're going to be floating and you know having big lit like a Christmas tree, and we'll know everything in the universe. But I think when, when we come back to what the Buddha says about enlightenment. And what that master said about the Buddha. The Buddha said, enlightenment, <coughs> awakening. I mean, if you really want the final, final awakening, you can have it. It's very easy. If you manage in one moment to have no greed, no hatred, no ignorance, then in that moment, you are awakened. I don't know about the next one. <laughs> what do you do? You see, this is a thing. To the, often, 
is kind of like in a way, as the Chinese master said, the, the Buddha is ordinary. The Buddha is nothing special. And what is special about the Buddha is he trying to, to dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion so that there can be more wisdom, there can be more compassion toward ourselves and others. And so I would say great realization can happen at any moment. If we are with playing with children, if we are waiting in supermarket queue, driving is a good one. Driving, excellent place. <laughs> but possibly the best place is a committee meeting. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you, that's great training. Another one is watching TV and not being swamped by it again. So in a way, there are many different places where we can practice that less greed, less hatred, less ignorance. Then there was something about conditionality. I use the word, and in a way, what does it mean? And personally, I would say I use the word in three different ways. One is basic cause and effect, that there are cause and there are effect. I remember many years ago when I was in Korea, and I had a very good friend, a young monk, and he was working in the kitchen. And one of the tasks in the kitchen is to wash the rice, because the rice is not very clean, it's kept in the attic, and you get lots of stuff in it. So generally you put the rice in this huge, kind of a big tub. And so you put the water in it, and then you must not lose one grain of rice, because you know it comes from other people, hard work. So you must not waste one grain. So like this very gently so that the water goes but no grain of rice then you have to do it a second time same no grain of rice lost and then you do it a third time and so I found my friend one day was coming down and the precept master was shouting at him because there was a bunch of rice kind of wasted it, they went quite a big bunch. And so he said, uh, I'll be careful. Huh? So the, the precept master left, and I said, but what happened? He said, well, you know, the first one was fine. The second one, I was so good. And the next one, a pretty girl passed by. <laughs> Cause and effect. <laughs> then I think you have conditionality, the way I look at conditionality, is in terms of our own being. That we are a flow of conditions, of inner conditions, in a way meeting outer conditions. And to me, the path of practice is about discovering all the conditions that forms us. And I would say very much at the path of practice as an exploration, discovering more and more the inner conditions that, part, that makes us, and also the interaction with the outer condition, which influences us so much. So that the practice is not 
to be above condition, floating on our little spiritual cloud, but really, in a way, go inside the inner and outer conditions and kind of have a greater wisdom about what's going on and how they interact. And within that, the, the third meaning, the way I would use it, it's in terms of conditions. When I talk of condition, is not in a psychological, historical way, but more you feel something in this moment. What are the conditions that you can recognize? And if you want to go a little backward, I would go a week, a month at the most. But generally trying to be more aware of the conditions. And one of the conditions that I find we have to consider more is tiredness. That actually we can become very irritable if we are tired. And so by the time we caught into the irritation, we think it's because of the other person or it's because of us. But generally it is because we are tired. And so if we learn to recognize tiredness, then we can go and rest instead of becoming irritable and then looking for somebody to be irritated with. So that I think it's important to see the conditions. What conditions what? And how can I creatively engage with those conditions? And then I just got a new one this very minute. And this is about not-self and about needing to be a self before dismantling the self. Okay. This, I presume, is from my good friend, Mark Epstein, going on being. Personally, I think we have to be careful with this word self because we have so many ideas about it. And often we call it the ego. As soon as we say the ego, it's like there is this bad guy somewhere. You know, there is this kind of the ego. Is a, but the ego just means I in Latin, nothing else. Self and not self. To me, I think it's, we have to be careful because we have this word, not self or no self, and we think there is nothing. Again, it's back to to, to how we use language, how we fix language. So we think, you know, we need to sit in meditation and then we need to dissolve, we need to not be who we are. But one thing I saw very clearly when I was in Korea is that the more people meditated, the more they were who they were, and quite different from each other. But what was interesting about them is that they were very light. There was a lightness about them. I mean, I have this image of once my uh, teacher, I went walking with him. And when we came back, we were crossing the river on stones. So I passed first, and then I turned to look at him. And he was, you know, 75 years old, and suddenly it was like, and he was so light. And there was this lightness about him. So I think we have to be careful 
about this not self, that it's, we have to get rid of something. I don't think that's what not self is about. Not self is more understanding the flow of conditions. So personally, I would the debate about having a self or not self, building, building the self or not. Personally, I think, in a way, it's, I would say it's a, nearly the wrong debate. To me, it's more about what is your flow of conditions? How do you feel about yourself in different conditions? And what is interesting is that in certain conditions, we feel good, we feel stable, we feel strong, we feel confident. And in other conditions, we feel ashamed, we feel frightened, we feel overwhelmed, we feel this is too much. And we are the same person. This is what is interesting. Even a, even a simpler thing, you wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, Whoop. and you really look blurry and kind of, you know, you've aged 10 years and you feel, is this me? And then in the afternoon, suddenly you really feel good and suddenly you feel full of energy, full of beans and you look at yourself in the mirror and you look bright and you think, well, is this the same person? So in a way, there is this self. But this self that we are is more like a flow of conditions, inner conditions meeting, outer conditions. And then I think it's more about what, what are the inner conditions with the outer condition I can cultivate so that there is more stability and openness. To me, this is what it is about. It's more about stability and openness. How can I feel more stable? And I must say for myself, actually doing the meditation helped me to become much more self-confident, much more trusting in ourselves, in myself. And to me, this comes back to one of the great qualities to cultivate in Zen, in Korean Zen, is great faith. <laughs> having this great faith in ourselves, And you might think, wait a minute. What is this great faith in yourself? You should maybe have great faith in your not-self. <laughs> but I would say having great faith in the potential for this flow of condition. And then what are the conditions that's going to help that? And what are the conditions that are not going to help that? And this, in a way, brings me to my subject tonight, which is ethics. And so first I'd like to, to read for this uh, quote, which is from the Mirror for Zen Students. It's a bit tough as a quote, so I hope you'll cope. But it's very interesting. It's Master Sosa. He's a great Korean Zen master of many centuries ago. To practice Zen while committing sexual misconduct is like trying to make rice by cooking sands. 
to, to practice Zen while killing life is like giving a shout while covering one's own ears. To practice Zen while stealing is like hoping the pot that leaks will become full. To practice song, Zen while telling a lie is like trying to make incense out of shit. <laughs> These people will only be joining Mara's army, even if they have much wisdom. So you know what he's pointing out, and this is something my teacher, and that's why I was really very um, always kind of uh, respecting of him, is that he, really one thing he insisted upon again and again and again, we needed to cultivate the three trainings together, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Meditation on its own was not enough. You can have the greatest meditative experience. It doesn't mean that you will not be a sociopath. You can have the greatest insight. If you don't have any ethics, you might not be a very nice person. So I think it's very important to see that with this Zen practice, although there is a lot of emphasis on meditation and wisdom, it's also very important to cultivate ethics. And so the other quote. So you have a Mengshan went to his teacher, Wan Shan. The teacher asked, do you have a conviction? Mengshan said, Without conviction, I would not have been here. The teacher added, if you have a solid conviction, you must abide by the precepts. With morality, you are likely to get an excellent result. A practice without the application of the precepts is like building a many-story building on air. Do you abide by the precept? I keep the precept, the pupil replied. So in a way, again, we have the intention, but for the intention to really flower, it must be based on this ethical basis. And then, again, you can have the flowering of meditation, and you can have the flowering of wisdom. And so what you find in the term of the Korean Zen tradition, what we've been practicing, is what the, the ethics there is very much based upon the Bodhisattva precepts, which are the 10 major and the 48 minor. And what is interesting is how they present the precepts, because you see often when we talk of ethics, we talk of morality, generally we have... Um, we don't like it often. We don't like to think, you know, we think that there are rules, there are regulations, they're going to stop it, they're going to make, to stop me from enjoying myself. Often that's the way kind of the ethics precept our view. You know, they're going to stop me from doing this and from doing that, etc., etc. 
But what I think is interesting with the Bodhisattva precept is they're viewed as really an help on the meditative path. And for example, it said, the ethical precept, I like a brilliant lamp which can disperse the darkness of the night. They are like a most precious mirror which is able to reflect the Dharma in its entirety. So in a way, it's not rules and regulation for their own sake. But the Bodhisattva precept is actually in order to help us to awaken. Bodhisattva means to look for awakening, to aspire to awakening. They are like the most valuable gems which frees one from poverty and endows one with wealth. So again, it's kind of like it nurtures. The ethics, the precepts are there to nurture, are there to give us direction, to give us a direction which is going to be beneficial to our practice, to the development of experiential wisdom. Then you have something very interesting in the text. While you are still in good health, you should listen well and make a great effort to realize this goal. You should be cultivating the way of virtue. But why instead of doing this, do you just calmly wait for old age to arrive? What is it that you intend to enjoy then? Today is already passing quickly by. In the same way, is your very life on the way to destruction. We are like fish in a rapidly diminishing pool of water. What kind of happiness is awaiting us? It's a bit... (laughs) But basically, it's saying don't wait for your old age to be ethical. (laughs) But do it now. Because it is now that it is going to make a difference. And then I wanted to kind of just share with you a few of the precepts. So I won't go over the usual one, which is not to steal, not to kill, and whatever. But what is interesting about this precept is that they have a title and then there is an explanation about how, to me, it's a reflection. Basically, these precepts are about helping us to cultivate compassion and wisdom, but also to reflect on our behaviors, to reflect on our intention. So, for example, refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from praising himself and slandering others either by doing so himself or by causing others to do so. He must never create the causes and condition for it to happen, nor devise a mean to do so or actually engage in the deeds himself. And that's why I found interesting, it's not just saying, don't do this. It's saying, look, do you do it yourself? 
Do you do it in a roundabout way? Do you do it... Because often we do it sideways. We often do this sideways. I did not do it. But did not you tell something to somebody who then went on to use that to give a hard time to somebody else? Often we do it that way. And this is the same with harm. Do we cause harm? Or do we cause harm in a roundabout way? Do we cause someone else to do it for us in a way? And so I think it's really looking at how we act and to, to, to kind of, not as a mean to judge ourselves constantly, but in a way to become interested in our intention, interested in our motivation, but not only that, but also in how we act and the effect of that action on others. Is it causing suffering? Is it causing harm to ourselves or to others? Refrain from being angry. When someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat that person well. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from becoming angry and not must make others angry. He must not create the causes and conditions, devise a mean, do it in a roundabout way. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to always be kind to others and never quarrel with them. So basically it is about trying to develop a compassionate mind. A bodhisattva should not abuse a living creature or vent his anger on an inanimate object who has not kicked at his computer. And it shows, I mean, it's very interesting. People have not changed in 800, I mean, they no more than that. Because the precepts, these precepts were put together in 400 AD. And so many, many centuries ago. And we still do this. We abuse creatures. I mean, what we do nowadays is service industry. Somebody phone you. Do you want double glazing? <laughs> and how are we? Ah, not again! Or, no, thank you. Or if you're trying to reach the helpline with your internet service. <laughs> wait and wait. And then when you get them, they tell you to do exactly the thing they told you, you know, which did not work. Are you compassionate and calm <laughs> or not? <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of looking. And it doesn't mean that we have to be perfect all the time. What is interesting with this precept is that actually people take them again and again. The monks and the nuns, they take them at least once a month. And the lay people, they take them every year. So the precepts are not seen as sacred for all time, but they seen as intention, they seen as aspiration. And so you have to kind of read them again regularly to remind you of what you aspire to, even if you cannot do it all the time. Then another one, which is uh, interesting, do not light destructive fires. A son or daughter of the Buddha must not with evil intent, 
set fire to mountain, plains, meadow, from the fourth to the ninth month. Other people's houses, city, temples, fields, forests, goods belonging to a spirit or any public property. He must not intentionally burn any living creature. And what I like about this is, again, it's kind of looking at the arm one might cause. Because basically they're saying you can burn the field in winter because nothing is really living because sometimes they do this to have more, better compost, that things grow better. But don't do it when they are alive, which is from about generally April to about November. So it's kind of, in a way, being aware also, the precepts are not just for ourselves and just for human beings, but they're also for everything that is alive. So that, in a way, the awareness of the precept, the practice, goes beyond just ourselves, just the human people, but also brings in the whole environment. And I just the last one I wanted to read is just to show you that generally precept are generally within certain time. So you have many different precepts here, and some of them are applicable to us now. Don't kick an inanimate object. Don't, pu- don't abuse creatures. And then other are really to the time and place. And so to me, I see more this precept as an inspiration to think about what would be the precept relevant to us right now, in our time. What, is, what are our ethical challenge now? What is it we need to reflect upon in those terms? Because this one is, do not hold an unwholesome occupation. A disciple of the Buddha must not, with evil intention and for the sake of gain. So again, you can see intentionality. If you do it on purpose, if you do it with an evil intent and for the purpose of gain, engage in such occupation as selling physical charms of men or women, preparing food with his own hands, pounding grain with a pestle, or grinding them in a meal, telling fortunes by looking at a person's face, interpreting dreams, predicting the sex of a child, making use of spells and magic, performing tricks in order to deceive others, domesticating hooks, preparing any kind of dangerous drugs or concocting poison out of gold, silver, or the venom of insects. Since such occupations are contrary to a mind of compassion and devotion. So again, it's kind of to see. Nowadays, we would think some people doing this is a good idea. I mean, if a Jungian analyst, you interpret dreams. (laughs) You know, if you go for a, uh, a certain type of thing when you're pregnant, you can, you know, you can see what the child is. So in a way, the thing changed. And so it's kind of looking. When I engage in an occupation, does it hurt somebody or not? Does it hurt myself first, but does it hurt others? What are the consequences of that occupation? And also to look, 
What is the mindset I have when I do it? Is it to benefit myself and others without harming? So it's kind of, again, looking at that, reflecting on that. So basically, these precepts are very much about, for me, in a way, cultivating compassion and wisdom in action. They're very much about that. It's not just, you must do this, and if you don't do this, you're a bad person. But it's more looking on the path of awakening, on the path of understanding of wisdom and compassion, looking at how we act, how we feel and how other people feel and how the environment is also affected by our action. And so this brings me to the other subject I wanted to look a little at, and it's compassionate action. I think what is very important is that, in a way, as I mentioned, sometimes as we do the meditation, of course we feel an openness of the heart, and we feel we kind of can look at others in a different way, with less criticism, with less judging, with less negativity. And then we can start to open more to the world with this compassionate openness. But I think what is important to see is that the, the f- compassion doesn't just remain a feeling, but that actually we do something. I mean, one of the precepts, the Bodhisattva precept, is to save living creature, to intentionally do something to help living creature to also rescue people in difficulty, to also help people who are sick. So there are many different precepts like that, which are about doing something. So I think it's very important that, of course, we come here and we sit. And it seems to be a very inner work. But personally, I would see this work as removing the obstacle to what I would call creative-wise compassion, So that when we go back into the world, we are more open to the suffering of the world. And also that we can handle it. Because I think with compassionate action, it's going to involve us with suffering. And I think this is in a way the difficulty with compassion. Is that it's going to make us face a company be with suffering. And being with suffering generally is painful. Not, I mean, it's already painful for the person who suffers the suffering, but also when you want to accompany to be there for that suffering, it's not going to make you joyful. I think this is what we, we have to be very clear. Loving kindness, yes. Loving kindness uplifts us. Loving kindness brings us happiness. But I think to see that compassion generally makes us in tune, makes us in touch with suffering. And because of that, it can in a way nearly kindle kind of some of our own suffering. And that's why I think it's very important to develop meditation so that we can cultivate stability and openness so that when we are faced with suffering, we can accompany it in a way where we're not overwhelmed. And then we can have this creative, wise response. And so that we can, in a way, nearly, I would say, accommodate the suffering of the world 
in such a way that you can respond to it without being destabilized. I think this is very important to see and also to see our own limit. That sometimes we have lots of energy, lots of time, and we can really be there for other people. And then all the time we are ill, we have difficulty ourselves. And in a way, we have to have more compassion for ourselves. So I think we have to see that we have limit of time and energy and, of course, finances. This is one thing when I was in Korea. Often I, was, I would be, at the beginning, in the newspaper or in the magazine because I was a, a rare bird. I was a French nun, French Buddhist nun. And I was the only one in the universe at that time. I mean, the French-Korean Buddhist nun. So everybody was a little excited about me, and so I would often be in the magazine and newspaper. And I could guarantee that if there was an article on me in the press, within, within a week I would receive letters from young Korean people asking me for money. But I was a nun. I had no money. About five pounds. So I would send them five pounds and I would say, well, that's all I've got. I can't give you anything else. So I think we have to see. To me, this is why the practice of listening is so important. To listen, to see. Listen to what the person needs and also to see, can I give it? Do I have that to give to the person? And sometimes I think what we have, and possibly we don't think about it enough, is time in a way. The time to stop, to give, I would nearly say to give our presence to somebody. I'm not saying that all the time this is what they need. But sometimes that's all that's required. We're not required to fix something. We're not required to give this or that. We only require to be there, to acknowledge that that person exists, and to really be prepared to spend time with them, even if they are difficult, as long as they're not aggressive and dangerous, and not. But if they're not, they might be cranky, they might be difficult. But imagine, if they are cranky and difficult, they have to be with themselves 24 hours a day. You might just need to be with them half an hour once a week. Can you do that half hour? To me, this is part of compassionate activity, to try to be there for others. Of course, if we can, due to limit of time and energy and things like that. But that's something that we, in terms of compassionate action, we can easily do. And then also, in terms of compassion, I think is to be careful of what I would call theological compassion. I know what is best for you. It worked for me, it will work for you. In tautness, it's terrible. It's an alternative capital of the world. And uh, many years ago, I used to be, I was here. And because my friend recommended it, I tried different things of a various alternative nature. 
because they were going to sort me out. They had no effect whatsoever. So after a while, I stopped telling them I was ill because I thought they were going to send me an, to another person with no effect on me. And, but it's kind of to be careful there, again, to listen. I think to me this is one, in compassion, this is the most important, to listen. What is it they really want? What is it they really need? Can I give it? And to try to, to listen to where they are at and not where I am at and I want them to be. Because that's another difficulty with compassionate action is nowadays we are very modern and so we want results. So I want to be compassionate, but chop, chop, chop. You know, it must have definite result. And, uh, and this is tricky. This is tricky. Definite result. Sometimes you give and it ends up in a weird place. In a weird place. And the result is not the result you want. But that's the way it goes. I think we have to be careful there. I mean, of course, we don't want it to be having too weird an effect. But we have to, I think my, my teacher used to say that when we give, we need to give without expectation. And he used to say you need to give as if you would give a dirty mop. If you gave somebody a dirty mop, you would not expect too great things from them. Thinking, you know, I give them that, I'm going to get this back, or they'll do this with it or not. You just give it. No expectation. I think, in a way, to me, this is also the, one of the root of compassionate action. Is that we do it to the best of our ability. We try to, of course, have the best of intention. And to be careful with the expectation we have about the other person. That at least they say thank you. That's an interesting one. No, I did this for them. They did not even say, thank you. This is not selflessness. <laughs> and so in a way, is to personally, I think, in terms of compassionate action, again, to bring the awareness, to see what happens. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. And to really learn from it. Many years ago, this is one of my great lessons in creative, wise compassion. Somebody came to me and she said, I'm in great difficulty. I really don't like my husband and I have a, I have a lover and I, want, and I have two young children and I want to drop my husband and leave the children to go to live with the lover, da, 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 da. And me, you know, being very PC and da-da-da, what people say, I said, oh, but don't you think the poor children, don't you, shouldn't you try to be able to be with your husband so for the sake of the children, da-da-da-da, very, what I would call, theological compassion. And so she said, oh, right. And then I did not see her for six months. <laughs> and then she came back, and I said, oh, how are you now? What's happening? She said, oh. I went back, I could only stand it for two weeks. I left the husband, went to live with the lover, and I'm trying to find a different way to be with my children. I thought, hmm, that, did, that taught me a lesson. 
but in a way to really be with the person where they were at and to really listen to them where they were instead of in a way, me having idea about you know the latest uh, research say that this is like that, this is like that, you should do this, you should do that. But to me, this is in a way the heart of compassion, that listening and that really responding in the moment, having the patience to listen. And also having the patience to listen, to take the time for one's own response. That's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? I've got a question again. Um, yeah, with the, with the ethics, yeah. um, it seems like there's, to me there's two different two ways of doing it. Um, reading about the precepts and mm-hmm. then using your intellect to interpret them and see where you're applying or not applying them, and then making an effort and using discipline to try and do that. Or there's trying to be really, really mindful all of the time, and then trying to feel when you're doing something that is inethical. Is that both, like which of those ways? You see, personally, I would say, I would say the, In terms of the precept, personally, I mean, because I, uh, I was in Korea and I'm really interested in ethics. So I have read many different texts about the ethics and uh, outside of the Bodhisattva precept, which I think is interesting, though I would have lots of, um, I mean, if I was giving a, a talk just about the text, I would say it's a very problematic text. Some of the precepts are fantastic, and I would say about on the 58. I would say 20 are relatively relevant to us. Then you have a few who are a bit weird, really weird. Some where you can see they're very dogmatic, and actually they're not, they seem to be in contradiction with what they're kind of trying to prove. So I think when one reads a text, one has to very much see the condition in which it arose. And I think one has to use our own judgment of being people of our time. And so to see that in any text you read, religious text you read, you always have a part which is dogmatic. Personally, generally, I leave that aside. I generally don't need to buy the dogmatism in 400 AD. Uh, 400 AD, uh, AD. I mean, they had their thing at the time. I can see why they're saying this and that, but this is not my problematic now. So... So then I would kind of look at the, the, the kind of like the spirit. To me, what is interesting is the spirit of it. Also to see how people in those days thought about it and how things have not changed much at one level. At one level, is still people are confronted by the same thing. So I would kind of see it more as a, I would say, kind of research. Research material about 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 how society works, about how religion think about pre- ethics and precept. And then in terms of what we do, I would go for the second method, which is a mindfulness, with, of course, the intention of compassionate and wisdom. I would say, yes, that, 
Because in a way to, to, to just follow the precept, I think is, is too small, it's too limited because it's only look at certain little angles. So I think it's kind of taking the spirit of the precepts, which is about wisdom and compassion, and then technically how to do it, as you said, is to be mindful, to look, mm, what is my intention here? Mm. Self-centered or not? What is the result? What happened? What is the cause? What is the effect? So re- yeah, I would say mindfulness is the key. Of course, mindfulness is a key. But you need the precepts to, to begin with. Well, I, I think the intention to be ethical, the exact precept, I think we have to be careful not to get bogged down, to kind of think this is a grid and must apply the grid to my life. That doesn't work that way. But you can, in a way, be inspired by, to me, when I read the precept, that it be this text, or if I read the other text I like very much, the Sigalavaka Sutta from the Pali text, what inspires me is actually the frailty of human being. They don't change. And so when I see that, I see ethics is a very common thing in a way. I mean, the basic message is do not harm. I mean, this is a basic thing. And then you have to look, because again, with ethics, it can, it can be looked in so many different ways. They say, do not steal. Most of us don't steal. But then, okay, I don't have to worry about that. But what about how we use resources? So, so again, it's kind of like, that's why I would say, the precept as an inspiration but not as a grid. That, I think, is problematic. The grid is a problem. But more that it inspires us to reflect on, basically, for me, ethics is about the relationship we have with the world. The way we impact on the world, the way the world impacts on us. I think it's very much about that. The relationship to others, to the world, to the environment. Yes? Um, am I right in thinking that the practice of the Brahma Viharas has never been very important in Zen? And, and if so, have you got any thoughts about why that might be? Because in other schools of Buddhism, it often seems like that's another thing that really supports practice of ethics. You see, the thing is that you have to see that you have the, the early tradition, 2,500 years ago, and then you have the different strands that developed. And so, in a way, over time, things develop in many different ways. And so I think in the Theravada tradition, um, you, you have the four Brahma Viharas, but which in the Pali text, you don't have exactly the way it's taught in the Theravada tradition now, technically. The Buddha just say, cultivate loving kindness, rejoicing, compassion, and equanimity. But he doesn't generally kind of tell you, do it this way, that way, or another. This is something that was developed later on as a technique that people are used in Burma, etc., etc. So in a way, what started out is you have this four quality, 
loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. And then you will have different traditions cultivating them in different ways. So yeah, I mean, in, in the Zen tradition, in terms of the technique, it's, it's very simple, you know? I mean, often people kind of could accuse them of being too simplistic, but you know, that's all you have. Like if you look at the uh, Korean style, you just ask a question, boom, you don't do anything else. But you don't ask a question in an empty environment. You ask the question within the Bodhisattva precept. And to me, what, why I kind of translated the Bodhisattva precept was because I could see that because of them, people were behaving in a certain way, which w was compassionate. And, and one of the things that I was the most impressed by is the... These ceremonies, these kind of small ceremonies they had of forgiveness, which to me was every time I, I was really, as a Westerner, it was like an eye-opener. Because in Korea, because of one of the precepts I read about uh, forgiveness, that if somebody comes to ask for forgiveness, you really must not be angry anymore and really kind of uh, accept their remorse and things like that. And from that, they devise a technique you don't find anywhere else. And the technique is that if you made a mistake, you go to somebody with a little higher up, you bow three times, and you say, I made a mistake. And then it's finished. They will never, ever mention it again. This is it. But in, I find that in the West, we forgive but we don't forget. And so generally we serve it later on. And to me, I was, we were flabbergasted. We thought, but how can they forgive? And not, you know, what about this? What about that? It was, to me, this was something which was quite amazing. The fact that they could just, okay, you, you, you see that you made a mistake. You intend not to do it again. Fair enough. Let's start afresh. So in a way, it's kind of like, to me there, it's very compassionate, actually. And also in there, there is loving kindness and also equanimity in being able to do that. So then Stephen already mentioned the four vows, you know. And what is interesting here, you have a text. You have one of the precepts is to save living creature. Which means that generally people will go to, to markets and buy live animals and then release them in nature. And then, of course, the merchant will get them again and sell them again. But commerce, that's commerce for you. But this was thing that people really took seriously. So seriously that uh, when people went to China in the 1800s, they would be huge kind of zoo-like place for animal in retirement around the monastery. Think for the cows, think for the horse, for the fish, for the birds, because they were really living the precepts. So to me, in a way, it's different tradition will find different way 
to cultivate the four Brahma Viharas. <laughs> so they might not cultivate them in meditation per se, but they will cultivate them in their life. And I think it's always for us to see uh, that we have these three training, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And then it's back to what you are saying. There is different technique of going about doing that. And so I think often in all the tradition and the Theravada tradition, the four Brahma Viharas will be in ethics. Or sometimes it also will be in wisdom. It just depends. But you will find them, but they will be there, but in a different way. Personally, I would nearly say, what, what is the least I can do? Because often when we are in situation, we think, what is the most I can do? And often you realize you can't do the most. But generally, personally, I would, say, I would suggest try by what is the least I can do? And generally, the least I can do is to listen, to spend a little time with the person or to try to understand the situation. So no, I would say, it's kind of like, in that moment, what can I do in that moment? Not in the past, not forever after, but as you say, what is it I can do right now? What is in my possibility to do right now? Knowing what I know in my limited knowledge, because sometimes we don't know everything. Then if we know something more, we might then do something because then we have more information or more possibility. Yes? Uh, how far is it possible to reconcile the, the Buddhist idea of, sort of um, uh, your action being relative to the situation, not being absolute and compassion for all things, and also sort of um, being part of a, let's say, a... Um, campaign movements in which there are there are small scale suffering individual people are damaged but there is a, is a greater good I mean I don't know you're, you're part of an airport protest say that some people can't get on holiday or you're part of some like Peter Tash or outing the gay bishops because they're being homophobic or something like that is that can you reconcile that with Buddhist ethics well you see ethics is always challenging because this, is, this ethics is not rule and regulation. It's what I would call situational ethics. So you're responding to the situation at any given time. And so I think, you know, the, the protest against the airport, I think it, it, it might not achieve what the protesters want to achieve. But at least it might achieve that the thing will be less then they were going to do it anyway. And it might also make people more aware of the damage that can come from that. So it's kind of generally when there are protests of some kind, again, you know, you, you have also diff some, some protests can be a, a bit crazy. I mean, there is, anyway, we won't go into the, in America, there is some really weird protesters at the moment, but we won't go into that. 
But I think it kind of, if we kind of look in a, something which is relatively reasonable, I think often the, the protest can either make us aware of the larger picture. Because then we realize, okay, we go on holiday, but at the same time, we're kind of uh, doing damage to the ozone layer, which in the end might be more problematic. So I think, in a way, we might not achieve everything we want to achieve, but at least we would have made people more aware and we, we might have made the thing less kind of uh, burgeoning than it could have been. And so it's kind of like you will not have 100%. I think we have to be careful. It must be 100% right. Sometimes it will be 70% and sometimes 30 And so we have to see uh, what kind of percentage we can accept. I think often it's that. It's based, you know, in order for me to live, I am going to occupy space. I am going to, to, to use energy just for me to survive. And then the question is, what is the limit? You know, I take all the space and forget about everybody else. Or I just take the space, <gasps> oh, little space, so that other people also can be in the space. So I think it's about that. To me, it's kind of ethics. It's kind of like kind of working with kind of this middle way. Not too much and not too little. And then sometimes it's a little too much. Sometimes it might be a little too little. And it's kind of like, it's a bit of a dance because we never totally know with ethics, you know. We have a good intention and then we have to see what happened. We don't necessarily know. So I think... <coughs> It's a bit of both, I would say. Is there, is there ever any situation where you can draw a line between the individual good of someone that you're relating to or someone who's asking for your help and some sort of greater good of other people? Or is it always the same thing? I think we have to be careful of the greater good. Uh, because to me, the question would be the greater good is based on what? Is it um, I think what you're posing is kind of like at any given moment this is kind of the challenge. This is a challenge of ethics. This is a challenge of ethics and in what you're asking is general. And in general you can't answer this question. And it's only in the particular of each situation that sometimes it will be appropriate and sometimes it will not be appropriate. If you think of Pastor, the guy who did, who did the um, kind of like the inoculation, actually at the beginning he really it was dodgy. There was a little boy. And, you know, and he kind of did something to the little boy, and the boy had a chance or not to live, you know. It was not pastor was going to die. It was a little boy. And it worked. So, I mean, you know, he nearly killed the little boy for the greater good of many people who were saved afterwards. So it's kind of, it's very difficult. So I think you have to take them case by case and then see what is the notion what is a notion? Because you also have to be careful of what I would call the abstract theory. 
And a lot of the time, the abstract theory, you have an, a theory, and you say, this is good for everybody. Then everybody applies the theory, and 20 years later, they realize this doesn't work for everybody. So then they change the theory. That's what happened with child rearing. I read a book about child rearing in the last 150 years. Every 20 years, it changes. You have the open, then the open doesn't work totally, so next, you have fierce. The fierce is too much, back to open. Open is too open, back to fierce. Back and forth, back and forth. And so the mother are kind of, you know, 20 years they do this, next 20 years they do that, and then you can never get perfection. It will, they will only work for some people at some time, at some point. So personally, I think we have to be careful about how much abstraction and how much conviction one has of one theory in terms of the greater good. And we have to stop and you have to do some. Uh, there is a question at the back. Uh, just a quick question. And, uh, you mentioned how uh, some monks and nuns take precepts every month and things like that. So I was just wondering if, if you thought it was useful at all to, or do you think it would be useful at all for lay people in general to sort of take their own vows or, you know, make affirmations every day or something like that? Do you, do you uh, see a useful, I don't know, rendition of that? Only, only if it inspires you, only if it doesn't become automatic, and only if it does not become, makes you tense. Well, you see, I have, to me, this is more like kind of a basis for inspiration. In, in, in Korea, they recite it because it's part of the tradition that you must recite the precept because the monks and the nuns need to really remember what they're at. And for the lay people, it's to remind them, you know, of their intention. So I would say, yes, if it inspires you, yes. But I think, to me, over time, the idea was that it becomes organic so that actually you don't have to remind yourself about having the intention not to arm anybody or not to steal, but just having that intention of wisdom and compassion. But I think it depends each person, what, what each person is working with and what are the circumstances and what are the danger for not being ethical. I think it's that. So some traditions say, yes, you must do that, other traditions say you don't necessarily need to do that. Personally, I think it's really up to you to, to see what is it that helps me in my life to remind myself of my value. This is that. What is it that reminds you of what is important for you, what is beneficial for you? And so, of course, some people have little kind of uh, notes. I mean, you have seen them around here. In Gaia House, you have little notes reminding you to be mindful, reminding you to care for others. You know, the, the coordinators, they, you know, in the office, they have, you know, kind of little notes about loving kindness to remind them. So I think, yes, it can be useful as a reminder. But then it's, do you have, over time, do you block it off? And it's kind of part of the furniture. So it's kind of like, what is it that helps you? And for how long? That's what I would say. To see it more as a skillful mean. To use at time and maybe at another time is not so necessary. 
And then now there is a 10 minutes 